Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome to Going Off Track. I'm Jonah. I am Brad. And we are joined on this podcast by Stephen, who is not here right now, but you will be hearing from very soon. Stephen was very, very, very excited for this podcast. Yeah, he was. I should have been excited for it, but of course... But what happened, Brad? I wasn't paying attention, and I was very busy. Typical Brad working at his job. But I did get to, you know, he Michael showed up early and I hung out with him for a little bit, and then he wouldn't leave afterwards. <laughs> yeah, he hung out for a while. <laughs> we gave him these awesome snakeskin converse that he was super into. He played some music for us. What an awesome dude. The dude is so positive. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, like, regardless of what you think of him or his projects, like... You can't really help but like him when you hang out with him. Yeah, he's such a positive, <laughs> amazing force. I didn't really know a lot about him. But yeah, Michael DeBars, in case you're wondering, uh, he's a new record called The Key to the Universe, which came out in April. Um, and I don't even know. His resume is like... Just look it up. I'm, I'm looking, it's I'm so looking all at it over now, the place. but it's so long. I mean, he abandoned... <laughs> it's so everywhere. Yeah, he... Dude, I don't even know where to start. He's an actor, a musician... He was um, in a band with Steve Jones in, in 1982. He may he may be the most Renaissance man of the 80s. Could, I can't think of any 80s icon. It's like, I mean, he's not that he's hugely iconic, but he was had his fingers in pretty much everything from TV to film to music. Right. His wife was Pamela DeBar. <laughs> to publishing. Yes. Uh, <laughs> famous author. He also, I mean, like, I feel like having this sentence in your resume. He also replaced Robert Palmer in Duran Duran's spin-off band Power Station, formed at 1985's Live Aid. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's starred op- opposite Clint Eastwood in Pink Cadillac, and of course played the master of disguise Murdoch in MacGyver. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's also performed music with everyone. Uh, he's you know got some help from Linda Perry writing songs on this record. He's um, yeah, played with everyone from the Sex Whistles, and he has the craziest stories about everything. <laughs> yeah. He was there. Like, he lived through punk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he played he in the That's punk... That's the best way to put it. He played in the punk band on WKRP. <laughs> He's like, um, Zelig? <laughs> yeah. Is that, the, is that the movie? 
I don't know. Or is it maybe the, maybe the Tom Hanks movie? What's the Tom Hanks movie where he's like at every major event and they... Oh, Forrest Gump? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's like Forrest Gump, but like the like cool rock version. Yeah. The cool media version of Forrest Gump. Yeah. Um, and he came in and yeah, was hung out, was so awesome, was so stoked to be here, was... Yeah, has like a really good perspective on, on sort of his career and his success and... Um, I thought that was a really inspiring conversation, personally. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, let's just fucking play it, man. Yeah, and the beginning part, I'm not going to spoil it, but him and Steven have a very special connection (laughs) um, from performing together. But I'll I'll let let Steven talk about that. Um, So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Michael DeBars. God knows I need some after the last two weeks that I've been at it. I mean, it's been I, like crazy, amazing. You know, the, the, I've been in three countries. I feel like, well, who started in Around the World in 80 Days? I feel like David Niven and Lord Byron, you know? Very nice. <laughs> it's like, it's been amazing. Because Lord Byron had the gout, right? In the club foot. No. That's... Oh, he did it. I, I don't think he had gout. I think he, had, he certainly had a, a funky foot. How wonderful that you even know that. Hey, thanks, man. Steven knows everything. Okay, no, good. No. Yes, it's true. I know almost everything, so this will be this will be a very interesting conversation. You do, Jonah, are you psyched? I'm very psyched. Where do you want to start, Steven? I feel like you probably have some ideas. Uh, well, I, I, want, I want to go back in time to a, a special moment. It was uh, 1996, and it was a television show called Sliders. Oh, God. I, and, you know, and, it's so... <laughs> and 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 Michael played yeah. the bad guy in an episode called Dream Masters, and I played one of the henchmen. I had two lines, and I got to walk around with you for like a day. How was that? It was hilarious. Can we you, had a ball. Can you remember what I was wearing? Uh, you, we all had on like really bad like like polyester suits. Not me, baby. I I, I was in skin tight something. <laughs> Which is the title of my next album, by the way. I just wish you Very nice. No, no, is that what a coincidence? You know, a, the guy who directed that mm-hmm. was the guy who produced Ghoulies. Do you remember that movie? I made yes. Ghoulies, and, yeah. and and then he later became God knows how like a legitimate TV director. But what an irony! How, how interesting! It was nice to see you. It's nice to see you as well. Yeah. And I remember specifically that they had an idea for you to walk around and being evil, holding a switchblade. And you were you were playing with it and playing with it and playing with it. And I, I wish I, I had the outtake, but at one point you accidentally pricked your finger and ruined a take by going, ah, fuck, damn it, we're good. And you immediately, like, recomposed. It was hilarious. And you were bleeding. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. It was oh, great. would you like to see me bleed? Is that, is that what you're saying? No, I like to see professional actors have a moment and then go right back to That's it. right. I mean, and that's been the key to the whole, the universe, if you wish. If, you know, I mean, I, I am a pro, and I, I if I'm bleeding, I will you know cast the blood aside and get on with it and it's the only way to do it that's why i've lasted so long i'm a cockroach i'm a bleeding <laughs> cockroach baby the apocalypse will be me and iggy we'll be the house band of the apocalypse <laughs> uh, i want to talk about the new record like at, at what point do you feel that when recording that you've got it that like a song is finished like like how do you know that the work is done with all that you've done that's a fabulous question it's an unanswerable in terms of words. It's a feeling. 
And 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 I think what in, in all seriousness, I think the reason that this record works is because it was very collaborative. So it wasn't like one person saying it. That's it. That's done. It was a mutual exchange. Um, uh, of of an understanding that we could not do it better. The the other thing is is that what I learned on this one was I didn't want to think about it. I wanted to feel it. So therefore it wasn't an intellectual discussion that we would have about it. You know, I really think that the groove in the second verse is you know None of that mattered to me. Tempo doesn't matter to me. If it shifts, it changes. Good. All the records I like, I, I want to hear the tambourine fall on the floor. You know what I'm talking about. It's not, it's not about perfection. It's about emotion. And we mutually had a, a bond about this kind of music, guitar, bass, drums, rock and roll, that was unspoken. So we knew categorically whether it worked or not. We didn't, we, you know, we didn't, which is the best take? Let's splice the bridge on the end and then put the chorus. We never had those discussions. I think those discussions have ruined rock and roll. It's a very good point. Yeah, because it's a lot of, and especially, I was in a recording studio one time and I watched a guy tweak someone's voice, which is, you know, the big complaint now with auto-tune and all that. And I started thinking about all these old records and I'm like, well, God, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to them, them be off key and I'm okay with it. It works with the song. Well, exactly. You know, and that's called feeling. So to answer your question as succinctly as I can, we, we didn't overthink it. We played it and we meant it and you can hear it. And, and the reason that it's so successful so quickly is because there's a void out there for music that isn't uh, both intimate and sexy. You know, it's it, rock and roll. It, what is rock and roll a synonym for? It ain't meditation, is it? <laughs> you know, so if you're playing rock and roll music, you, it's a carnal. It, it, rock and roll's heart beats below your waist. You know, it's as simple as that, man. And, and who, you know, I don't think with my penis, <laughs> which is the title of my next album. Oh, that's we're funny. all it's very excited. <laughs> the band is called The Hard-Ons. We're very excited. <laughs> is that for real? The hard on? Of course not. <laughs> you know what? I would take it. I would absolutely take it. Our first song is a ballad. It's about a young lady called Cialis. <laughs> <laughs> Judd John, John is unfamiliar with comedy. His sister's on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah? Yeah, my sister Vanessa. Is that true? Is it? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, well, come, listen, funny. without a sense of humor, go home. Yeah. <laughs> That's you know, if I if I didn't have a sense of humor about my career, you know, I mean, uh, let's face it, I did Alf, you know, and I did sliders with you, so you know, one has to have a sense of humor about these things. And, and, uh, and I, I mean that it's not not. Um, have you always had that, or did that kind of come with time? Sort of, did you ever take yourself really seriously? Well, you know, no, because because I had this title, and I went to this boarding schools, and I went I had this noblesse oblige, this entitled education. And I didn't want that. I wanted to be, you know, the artful dodger. I didn't want to be Downton Abbey. You know what I mean? <laughs> I wanted to be Muddy Waters and, and Lord Byron. But the humor that I had to access was because that environment is so horrifically class system based, entitlement and all of that. And the only way I could exist in that environment was to make them laugh. You hear this a lot from artists. The way you escape being beaten to death is by making them laugh because they can't punch you if they're laughing. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Do you, do you feel that that's like, like what has enabled you to have such a storied career to go with acting and rock and roll. And it seems to me you've crossed back and forth pretty seamlessly. 
It's been very, very interesting the way it's gone. And I, I, and I think, again, that not thinking it, uh, about it too much. Look, like you, you're clearly really good at this. You, you've got to have a certain amount of discipline to be able to do it. I am very disciplined because I, I was born and raised in an environment which required it. Uh, I call it rhythm and blue blood is what, <laughs> is what I, you know. And I learned a lot very quickly how to survive because that... And, and, and I think that the discipline has enabled me to jump back and forth. The other thing is that I never pigeonholed myself in terms of I'm an actor, I'm a musician. To me, it's one wonderful organism of being able to express yourself. The, the thing about self-expression is who's the self doing the expressing? That, that's the task. Who are you? Because authenticity is what rock and roll fans want. They don't know necessarily that that's what they want, but they can tell the difference between an authentic artist who's telling the fucking truth and an artist that isn't. And uh, and so all my life, in terms of acting, you believe an actor who who believes that what he's saying is what's happening. It's the same in music. So essentially, there's no real difference. If you're asking me what is the thing that I enjoy doing the most, which I suspect you 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 would ask if you haven't already, is microphone. Marshall stack, drums, crowd. There's nothing that beats that. I mean, all the, you know, I've worked with De Niro, I've worked with Clint Eastwood, I've worked with Mick Jagger, I've worked with Andy Garcia, I've worked with Gabriel Brown. I've worked with great actors looking me right in the eye. And that is the most satisfying thing. But it is not nearly as satisfying as playing to 200, 200,000 people <laughs> in a club or in an arena. You know, there's nothing that compares with that. Because that, that's a conversation that you're having that's in the moment. Acting is something that is studied and in the can, and then they put it out a year later, and it flops, <laughs> usually. <laughs> um, you know, and you, you've got all that work in it. But, or you have a success. The one thing I did learn about that was you can't have any expectations of what happens to whatever you do. The, the process is the prize. Very nice. I, I agree with that totally. What do you think about theater? I adore theater, and uh, the the issue with that is is that because of what I do, uh, it's difficult for me to spend weeks rehearsing. But I but I do I do want to do theater, and I have a I have an idea of, of a play that I that I want to do. Uh, it's the Scottish play by William Shakespeare. You can't say the title; it's bad luck. But you guys know which one I'm talking you, you can't, about. You, you're not in a theater, dude. You're in a recording studio. You can say it over and over and over. Well, I mean, the thing we're not going to send you outside, and make you turn around three times and spit and curse you see, and come back you in. You know your shit. I told it, you. I told you. You know your shit. Which it's, it's Macbeth, <laughs> and I want to play Macbeth. <laughs> if you think about the Macbeth narrative, it's about a guy who is completely ruled by a young girl, and she makes him kill the king so he can become king. My idea of doing it is because I, you know, on my album there's a song called "Yesterday's Casanova." which is clearly about a aging Lothario. And, and I was trying to sum up what my life has been to a degree, which is a womanizer and, and incapable of sustaining relationship. Macbeth is drunk. 
I play the whole play drunk. So all of those witches that appear are hallucinations, delirium tremens almost. And the young'un would be some 22-year-old supermodel from Eastern Europe in fur and bones and tattoos, and we'd do it to music. We'd have a score that was very bluesy, and I'd play it like a drunken man obsessed with this girl who doesn't really want to be king. But she forces him to be so. And that, in 500 years, nobody's played it that way. No, I love that. And it's also, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's also, it's the shortest play, too. So, Well, I, I, I love you right now. You are fabulous. <laughs> that is so perfect. You're going to do four and a half hours of a Shakespeare play? Fuck no. that, no. But you know what I thought I'd do is also just cut it down to its absolute essence as to what I'm saying, so to make the point and cut it. But, but I mean, doing a rewrite on Shakespeare is a little presumptuous, perhaps. <laughs> no way, dude. There's, I've seen, I saw a version of that where someone tweaked Macbeth and they made it to be about the porter, you know, and it was really his vision seeing it, which is, you know, the well, funniest part of the whole movie. Well, that's play. like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that Tom Stoppard did. He took oh, those two. So good. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I'd love to do theater, but I'd love to do it in, in a way that was avant-garde and had a certain sort of, you know, uniqueness to it. Did you see Sleep No More? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Joe that, and I walked and, around that. Yeah. Because yeah. They said, we did it because they had an open bar. Uh, well, that's a, certainly a great reason to do anything. Uh, in fact, I'm thinking of calling my next album Open Day Bar, which is going to be, I think, kind of effective. Sure. But no, okay. I, I, the double entendre, too. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I love theater. But I, I, I understand that the, the reason you asked it is because rock and roll is alive. Rock and roll lives live. I mean, we all know that. You know, I, being with Zeppelin and all of that. I mean, I was with them for the seven nights they played the forum, and nobody slept for seven nights and Jimmy, they would literally, and he would, this is on record, Jimmy, they would carry Jimmy on there and uh, unconscious. And then he'd plug in his Les Paul and rock for four hours and then collapse. And then, you know, so live music is, is, is essential, is essential. That's why I'm going to tour like crazy with this album. And now it looks like I can, you know, because it's been received well. Yeah, man, it's going to be amazing. Are you going to do any um, Scum of the Earth songs? <laughs> <laughs> you certainly know my stuff, right? Uh, Scum of the Earth, I was, you know, people ask me about that, and it was a pivotal moment, you know. And, and, and it was a band that didn't exist, which I find very da-da. You know, it's very Marcel Duchamp, that the fact that I was in a rock band that never existed, and yet it's like a YouTube. There are more hits on that than, than uh, you know, than virtually anything. Well, they could never release the show because That's WKRP right. had all the licensing rights that they could never compile it so people began seeking it out because yeah. there was always the um we talk about here on the show a lot you know the 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 punk rock episode of quincy which got everything yeah. wrong but was yeah. so funny yeah and then scum in the earth and that's it like that's the only that's like yeah mainstream media but you look know, at punk rock Steve, can that's you guys really talk about what exactly you're talking about for people that well, remember, WKRP, remember WKRP, yes. in Cincinnati, WKRP in this amazing show he played show. he was in a punk band called scum of the earth and everyone was freaking out because scum of the earth is coming Okay, I but the hook of it was it was a very popular radio show, and it was based in a radio station. Johnny Fever played by Howard Hessman, and Lonnie Anderson later became Burt Reynolds. You know the Buxom Blonde, the reception. You know you got it. So, <laughs> but the, the the episode is written. It's as interesting as a punk rock band that comes and, and destroys everything. So the gag was, oh, they're violent, they're anarchistic, they're the Pistols. And we arrived there and they wanted us in ripped jeans and, and safety pins and all of the obvious props that you would... But I said, don't do that. 
put us in suits. Put us in suits and ties, and that will make it so much. Throw them out the window. So we're throwing, you know, <laughs> so we're doing all that punk behavior, but like aristocrats, which I thought was way more interesting. And so did the brilliant Hugh Wilson, who created the show. He thought that that was a lot funnier, you know, than, um, than your ass. Um, I've that, seen Jonah's ass plenty of times you know, on the screen. Well, we can't discuss that, though. That's a whole other channel. Um, I just like that because you've seen, you've you've seen, you know, in your career, movements happen. Like you've seen rock and roll change shape. Yeah. You've seen punk rock start. You've yeah. seen hip hop start. You've yeah. seen, you know, what EDM, which yeah. was used to be techno, was called, and all that. Yeah. Were you? Was there a conscious awareness of this when it was happening? Do you, do you seek these kind of genres out? I sought them out for my own amusement. Did I try and replicate them? Absolutely not. I've I, I played the same music since 1972, probably before anybody in this room was born. I played Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Music, Muddy Waters since, since, I, could, since I first heard it when I was 14. I mean, I first was playing music, writing music when I was still in public school, which is a boarding school. And that's the music I've continued to play, and I've never changed. Am I aware of EDM and hip-hop and punk? You bet. 1977, I'm in Detective on Swan Song, where boom, bap, boom, boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. But that kind of music, sludgy, rock and roll, heavy. And then I heard the Pistols, and, that, and I went to San Francisco, and I watched it. It was the last gig. Ever feel you've been cheated? That last game. Yeah. I'm there. I went there because I knew, I just psychically knew that this was going to change everything. And I completely changed my view of, of what I wanted to do. I didn't want to play that halftime sludgy rock and roll. I wanted to uh, strip it down and, and be minimalistic and powerful. Because that, to me, the pistols are a top three. You know, I mean, it's Beatlestone's pistols for me because. It has to be because they really, even though they were, you know, Steve was influenced by Thunders and you mm -hmm. can track it. But, but man, nobody wrote like John Lydon. John no. Lydon is Charles Dickens. You know, John Lydon is a great chronicler, like Ray Davis, of, of British life and, and Thatcherism and the class system and abortion and all of the things he's talking about are incredibly important. Now, what's happened today is there are no messages. Nobody is really giving us any messages other than wear a huge gold necklace, have a huge ass, have a private jet. It's all so materialistic. You know, the revolution that that was in the 60s and 70s, and I'm not proselytizing that there was a golden age. I'm simply telling you facts. That today, there is nobody out there who is really uh, has a them and an us consciousness where we need to hear shit, and we're not. You know, it's all about how much can I, how much materialism can I access? And with technology being so divisive and so keeping people apart, it's making it harder and harder for the rock and roll community to exist, or indeed for any tribe to exist. My God is better than your God, and, and we've got refugees in Syria. Yeah. Uh, you know, on a spiritual level, it's insanity. But don't you think it is? It, it can also is capable of bringing people together. Yes, and I think that showing in the guy in Tiananmen Square was the epitomized that symbolism that you're that you're referencing. But we've got to be very careful about policing ourselves in terms of do we own this technology or does this technology own us? So, like I was with heroin with me, you know, I mean, I was a junkie, and 
I realized one day that I, I had no degree of control of it. It's the same thing about being obsessed with technology. Either you're going to make it work for you or it's going to own you. That's the dilemma to answer your question. Was there I, it's interesting because there's there's actual studies that actual studies. That's stupid. There are studies <laughs> that talk about how, you know, when you go on Twitter, when you go on Facebook, when you do that, you get a, there's a little endorphin rush. Not unlike what you're talking about. So it is an addiction, you know, to like, it's basically an addiction to what did I miss? I have to stay connected. Well, there's that. But my view of what you've just said, which is a very philosophical statement, is identity. We're losing our identity. So you're on Facebook and you establish who you think you are and who you want to represent to the audience who you are. So it's all about identity. And what you can do is, and that's what the phenomena of posting a photograph of yourself 20 years ago at your prime then represents you today. It's such an interesting uh, science fiction approach uh, to, uh, to life. Uh, it's a complete sham. It's literally like photoshopping your soul. Well, well Betty White had that joke where she said... Um, when I was a kid, looking at people's pictures of their children was considered a waste of time. <laughs> Betty White is up there with Kierkegaard. <laughs> she also has that great line that I, uh, there was, she's like, why do people say you've got balls? That makes no sense. You kick those once, you go over. Say you've got a vagina because those things can take a pounding. Well, certainly something I've explored. <laughs> I mean, it seems like sort of talking about authenticity, like you have always seemed like you've had a very strong sense of self. I mean, do you think, I feel like a lot of people don't have that, don't know who they are, or I don't know if that's related to the the technology you're talking about. I mean, what do you sort of think about kind of how you've had that sense and maybe how that kind of relates to other people? In my case, and I can only speak for me, I don't know what other people go through. I mean, I can sense what other people go through, but I can only talk from my own experience. Right. I've had to create personas to get through every area of my life. So I have tremendous um, understanding of whatever gets you through the night, to quote John Lennon. I mean, if I had to assume the stance of an aristocratic student at a boarding school when what I really wanted to do was be John Lee Hooker, clearly I'm creating a character to get through the experience right yeah. so then i leave school then i go to drama school so i go from boys jerking each other off playing cricket into a, a world of beautiful girls who want to be actresses so now i become something else i then become a thespian not a lesbian a thespian uh, and then i create that persona and then i get to sew with love so now i'm a young actor so i've been through so many different personalities which has given me the ability to be able to discard them so now, in my current incarnation, it's the truth. I've stripped away all of those, that artifice. That's why this record is so good, because I'm just singing the song. I'm not attempting to be some Delta Blues man or Rod Stewart or Bowie or, you know, my references are not on my sleeve anymore, you know. Um, they're not even tattooed on my ass. I just can go out there and be authentic because I have the experience of being fake, fake out of self-preservation but i have experience about creating a character that's why the internet is so interesting to me and why i use it because i believe in connectivity and i believe that it can connect us but you got to tell the truth man this this record you can dance to the truth would you say that that is the the actual key to the universe 
The key to the universe is a question, first and foremost. I, I never proselytized that this was, I had the answer. I wanted to start a conversation where somebody would say, Michael, what is the key to the universe? And then I would say, what do you think the key to the universe is? Essentially, it is, for me, right now, right here, it is the knowledge that I do love myself enough to be loved. Make sense? Yeah, completely. Because we, we, it's you, interesting you bring things up like that because Jonah is a, a serious yoga practitioner. And good. we, we talk about tell. meditation and yoga a lot on yeah. the podcast because yeah. he just brings in people that we thinks we should talk to. And I've learned quite a bit about that. And I'm very vocal about I go to therapy and a big fan of it. And he's always pushing me in that direction to meditate and sit and things like that, which... You know, that would be my answer to the key to the universe, just sitting still with yourself. Well, you know, you're absolutely precisely correct. And I just love you for being, have the balls to say, I go to therapy. Because most people in our business want to assume a superheroic stance and that they don't need any help. It's not that you need help. It's if you want to grow as a human being and be able to be part of the solution, not the fucking problem, then you've got to work on yourself because if you don't work on yourself, you're going to be worked over. If yeah. you don't stand for something, you're going to fall over. Right? So yeah, uh, meditation and yoga, um, and my girl is a Pilates instructor, which is a whole other headspace where, where you are evolving physically. You're not thinking at all. That's the thing about meditation. You're not dwelling on anything because that's where the problems lie. If you're dwelling on a particular subject, if I'm dwelling on the making of a record, it's not going to feel right. You know, it might sound correct. But if it doesn't feel right, you've got nothing. So that's why yoga and getting outside of your who you think you are and just becoming part of one wonderful organism, you know, you, you'll live a more satisfying existential life. And I don't want to live in the past. I, I'm proud of it. Even the mistakes, the, the narcotics, all of that, and the womanizing and the, the lying and the cheating, I've learned from it. It's almost like I can look at it, let it go, and get on with what's happening now. I'm certainly not going to have any expectations because they fundamentally will not manifest the way you think they will. So don't bother. <laughs> you know, be in the moment. Have you had any Our producer, Brad, who's, who's not there, he said something that I think about all the time. And uh, Brad and I both, uh, we have children. And he said, I was just asked this question the other day, like, would you, change everything? would you change anything in the past? And I started thinking about that. And he said, no, because if I did that, I wouldn't have my kids. And I, they're awesome. That's exactly right. Well, first of all, why would you dwell on something that can't happen? Exactly. So yeah. then you're jerking off right there. And I'm not, I, you know, which is fine. You can jerk off as much as you like. But I'm not going to masturbate over my past. Well, is that true? Hang on. <laughs> yes, there was one night in Cleveland that remains, I think, pretty precious. But that's a whole, that's a whole other interview. But I, I was... <laughs> Oh, Michael, for God's sake. <laughs> the next thing is, Michael, when's your book coming out? You know, I mean, you know how many times I've heard that? Yeah, I, well, I was, oddly enough. You were about I to was, ask me, yeah. I'm curious. Well, there's a documentary that's coming out that actually debuts in the San Francisco Film Festival in June, and it's called Who Do You Want Me To Be? Which is very much summing up what, what he is a Zen dude right here, this guy, Jonah. Very much so. <laughs> he is very, very much so. Zen. Thanks, yeah. guys. Which is beautiful. The great energy is beautiful. But, uh, but that really says it. The book thing, man, 
I, you know, it's not over. Why would I, you know? I, I've got a lot of notes and there's a lot of journals and, you know, and a lot of scandalous, wonderful stories about the people that I've, shall we say, you know, connected with um, over the years in many ways. But I don't believe that there's uh, the climax of that book. You know, I'm, I, there's a lot more to go. There's a lot more. There's a lot more to go. I'm the Liam Neeson of rock and roll. I got a lot more action movies in me. Nice work. Sort of speaking of kind of getting outside of yourself, sort of in the 70s, in that time, like, did you have any kind of positive experiences with psychedelics or anything like that? Or was that kind of not really your speed back No. I was never, I never will be, uh, uh, and I never, and by that I'm being glib, of course, I, I, I never, London was about hashish. Uh, it wasn't about acid. And I can really sum- summarize my life by what drugs I took in what decade, in a sense. You know, London was not about exploration. You know, it wasn't that. It wasn't that. It was about hedonism. My first memories of revolution, <clears throat> forgive me, I've been talking my ass off for ages, which is difficult to do, um, <laughs> uh, is... Uh, Hashish uh, represented debauchery. When Brian Jones put that hat on, the world changed, or at least mine did. And um, it became a decadence. Free love wasn't called free love in England. It was called fucking. <laughs> so there's a big difference. You understand the distinction? Yeah. You have free love at Woodstock and you have fucking in Chelsea. It's two different things. <laughs> so one is liberating on one level and one is liberating on another level. And um, we were just narcissistic. We, we did things for our own pleasure. I interpreted for the San Francisco movement and, and uh, Owsley and Leary and, and Ramdas and all of those people that are exploring acid as being a communal thing. We were about as interested in that as we were in Lawrence Welk. You know, so it was muddy waters on hashish that wore a hat like Brian Jones. That was my revolution. I never thought about it. I never really thought about anything spiritualized until I got off, off the gear. You know, when I stopped doing all of the gear, then I thought, wait a minute wait a minute, I have a responsibility to be loving and embrace my community. And, and once that began, then I began to explore Krishnamurti, Paramahansa Yogananda, and Mir Baba, and all of, all of the great mystics, all the poets, Rumi, all of the poets I would read. Before that, I'd read the romantic poets, Byron, Keats, Shelley, because it was dramatic. And Arthur Rimbaud and all of those great poets, but but well, did, you get into, did you get into Blake, and then that changed everything? Well, or? Blake, Blake, Blake was is so rock and roll. Completely, you know, Blake, Blake was absolutely one of the forerunners. But 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 he was also it was um, if you if it, it was a I mean Blake was Hieronymus Bosch. He, you know he wasn't Krishnamurti. You know you know there's a there's a gentleness and a peacefulness to what you where, where you're at. You know, there's a beauty and a peace there. And that's what I... I went through such storm and drang and such incredible battles with myself and broke every limb and blood and every fluid was flying, you know, and and, and I had to, you know, consolidate and, and focus on what was really important. And what is, was really important was forgiveness and acceptance of what was happening rather than trying to twist and manipulate. 
How about, and I bet gratitude plays a big part too. Huge. Especially here, sitting with you guys in this beautiful environment. If you're not grateful for every second, like, I'm with Judy LeBeau, who is helping me, you know, get this record across to the people. I'm so grateful for her presence in my life. I don't treat anything like it's a team that's working together to win the war. It's not a war. I want people to be aware of what I'm doing, and I'm trying to do it in a peaceful, compassionate way. But rock and roll, by description, is something that's powerful. So it doesn't mean that peace is is passive. Peace in action is power. You know, power to the people, you know, John Lennon. I mean, you know, he was aggressive about his desire for peace. People find that very difficult to reconcile. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because, you know, it's when you're not here to... stick up for yourself you know people can draw any conclusion they had you know what was it like you know and i I remember an interview one time with uh pete townsend and people were asking him about you know um you know hendrix and other people and he got really agitated and said these were icons you listened to but these were my friends and this is very hard which i can only imagine with you know the turmoil and you know the greatness that you saw especially in the 70s and parts of the 80s like i mean zeppelin i mean that's got to be like a very weird thing to talk about it's it, it is but i mean i don't look upon it as weird it's just my my view of things i think if you think of it as weird then you're worried about what people are going to how they're going to respond to what you feel so yeah. i don't give a damn about that uh, i i am me you take it or leave it <laughs> you know, i love you you know it doesn't <laughs> matter to me what you know what you think um i I love to be loving and good vibes, um, but if 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 the detestable cynicism and sarcasm that exists still in our community, usually driven by a bad diet and sugar, is uh, and, and medication that you don't need, the the cynical trolls that that try and make the, themselves feel better by trashing you, all of that, I pray for the, the those those people. In terms of Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin were not a band. Led Zeppelin was a cult. The Beatles were a band. The Stones were a band, which was dangerous for young kids at that time in the middle 60s because of the androgyny and the various decadence that they represented. The Beatles were the charming mop tops. Zeppelin gave a voice to those disaffected kids in the parking lots of America. When, when Jimmy Page played those riffs, that was a magical incantation. And this is a fact. Robert's voice was this Viking prince and um, whatever the you see again the critics loathed Led Zeppelin meanwhile they're the biggest selling band of all time now what does that tell you it tells me that critics can go fuck themselves and go criticize their wife go do that but don't tell us what the hell is going on. Yeah, what, what Zappa say writing for rock music is like typing or is like singing for architecture or something crazy. That's perfect. It makes no. It, it, it's an abstraction. It's an absurdity. It, it, you know. So the point that I'm forget that. Who cares about that? Well, what's important is is that uh, the, the talking about Zeppelin. I love to talk about my friends. I don't yeah. see them as some kind of iconic abstraction. They were my friends. They, you know, Jimmy, I mean, he signed me. Peter Grant was my dad. <laughs> Peter Grant was the most amazing character. You know, the, the, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't write this guy's 300 pounds, gypsy, 28 rings, 42 scarves, 17 bracelets, two teenagers, bag of Coke. I mean, are you <laughs> kidding me, man? That's a life you'll never see again. Brian Seacrest is not Peter Grant, you know? 
One Direction <laughs> is not Led Zeppelin. Now, I'm not saying that the golden age and everything sucks. I'm not saying that at all. You know, One Direction is great and they make millions of people happy and that's beautiful. But it ain't, that. you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, you know. Yeah, like Steven said, my sister's on Saturday Night Live and the show has kind of a history of, you know, guys like Belushi and Chris Farley, these guys that partied really hard. I go to a lot of these parties and was like, is it crazy? I was like, no, everyone has so much work to do. Everyone, as soon as they have a break, they go to shoot something else. They have a web series. They have something else. I feel like now things are, I don't know, because there's so many more mediums or something, people seem... It seems like you can't act that decadent and still get anything accomplished, I guess. Well, it depends what you mean by decadent. If you're still doing drugs, you're an idiot. So let we get that out of the way. <laughs> um, if, because, as you said, absolutely correctly, there are so many channels, so many channels, and there's so much content needed. That's why I'm so grateful to be here, because this is a conversation one is not going to have in most uh, particular um, you know, situations. So it's really great, and I'm enjoying it tremendously. But I'm constantly creating stuff. Here's a guy. I got a record. It's guitar-based drums, and I'm talking about doing Macbeth. You know what I mean? So, I mean, just that in itself, there's so many things I want to do I mean, and, and can do. And you've got to have the discipline to do it. So I always thought that it was such a misnomer to describe doing drugs as partying. It's about, you know, it, it is not a It's a party for 20 minutes. <laughs> And then it's a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, you know, it mutates into a, a, a nightmare. And, and, and they call it partying, which I think is so interesting sociologically that, that you almost, you're almost justifying the fact that you're, that you're addicted to drugs by calling it partying. It's almost a great excuse. But yeah, I like to work my ass off, and I'm sure your sister does too. She does, oh. yeah. They're working. They're yeah. It's like anything else, you know. It's it's uh it's work, and it's also like you don't think about it, it's work because you're really that's right. And I was just it. gonna say, it's like when they say, "I am not what I do." Oh yes, you are. <laughs> are you kidding me? Of course I am what I do because what I do is who I am. You know, I'm a rock and roll musician and 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 whatever else. I mean, of course I am what I do. What I am. What I. How about this? I am what I don't do. That'd be pretty deep, wouldn't it? How do you put your band together? Like, how do you, is it different than who's in the studio? Or, because if you're setting up a no, tour, I imagine you well, know a couple people. The, the, the band was created, you know, Nigel was is the bass player. Nigel was in Silverhead. We were teenagers. It was our first band. Collectively, we weighed 150 pounds. <laughs> you know, I, we were the thinnest, most decadent band on, on the planet. And, and, and I know him so well, and, he, and I love him so much, and, and he feels the same way about me. So there was him. But Bob Rose is the mastermind of this record. Bob Rose, the producer, brilliant, you know. And he cast Clive Deemer on drums from Beck and, uh, uh, and Robert. You know, he's Robert Plant's drummer and Jeff Beck's drummer and Radiohead. Brilliant, unbelievable. Guitarist Danny Robinson, phenomenal guitar player, lives in Prague, really brilliant. It's like Mick Ronson and Hendrix, great. So there's the band. And um, so it was cast by Bob, whose vision it was to make a guitar-based drums record that that would just rock. And uh, we did. And that's why I did Linda's song first, because she is such an amazing person and, and, and more rock and roll than 90% of the guys, you know, that I know. And I love her, you know, she's brilliant. And she wrote this song, and, and, and what we did was... And Nigel found it and said, MDB has cut this song. And that was the template for the rest of the album. Once we got like a vibe 
and uh, because I didn't know the guy, the other guys. So once we got a musical connection over that track, the album was done in five weeks. Bang, bang, bang. That's fa- that's amazing. I just talked to a band a couple weeks ago who were like that. Like this kid took an ad out and formed a band, and it was the opposite of, "Hey, we're all really good friends. Let's try and form a band." And there's part of me that thinks that that's got to cut out a lot of future hassle. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, but the future hassle is a great name for a band. Um, <laughs> but what I would suggest is you take each day as it comes, man. You know, um, if you start planning stuff, uh, I have found that those plans do not come to fruition. I think you, you've got to be in the moment in all everything you do. I mean, if you take Jackson Pollock, what the hell was Jackson Pollock doing? He was splattering paint on a canvas indiscriminately, trusting that he knew where it should go, right? They're just splotches. So a nine-year-old could do that, says some idiot. You know, and yeah, a nine-year-old could do that. But it's, but there's a divine thing that happens. Anybody, I don't care who it is, Keith Richards, the best song you write is God is your co-writer, buddy. I mean, he's not going to get the publishing, obviously, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's a divine thing. You do it so fast, you don't think. Don't think. Don't think. It can happen in any number of ways. You can form a band with your uncle. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, especially... What made you guys record in Rome? Well, uh... A number of reasons. I suppose the the, the basic reason is that Bob Rose, this wonderful producer of FOD Records, incredible, they've been so good to me, calls me up. After the Power Station thing, I did an album for MCA with him, and it it was great. I had the Tower Power horns, I had Jimmy Keltner on drums, I had Steve Jones on guitar, Andy Taylor from Duran. It's a great band. but That's an insane band. No, crazy. (laughs) But what happened was... Two weeks into that album's release, and this is just a story you guys have heard till the cows come home. Oh, the label fall, uh, collapses, so there's no promotion. The, the album fell between the cracks. I got Murdoch a, a couple of weeks after that, after the Pass Station tour finished, and I, I was on telly for the next 25 years killing people. Um, <laughs> so then I get a call from Bob Rose, the guy that did that album that I'm talking about. Somebody out there likes me, and he says, listen, man, I'm in Europe. I've been recording all of these acts in Europe, Rock and roll in Europe is huge. I've just done Julian Lennon's record, and and Julian liked me, and and he reminded Bob of me. Bob calls me. He says, "Come to Rome. That's where he lives. That's where he's made all these records with these European bands, and and let's make the ultimate rock and roll record." Okay. Okay, <laughs> you know, yes, sure, I'll do that. Not? You know, and but what happened was going there. That city, I don't know if you guys have been, but it is the most beautiful city, and it's timeless, and it's and the, everywhere you look is something beautiful. There's this incredible statue, and it's timeless and wonderful, and art is just seeped into the DNA of that city. And in in a, some mad way, it upped my game because there was so much beauty and brilliance everywhere you looked that I would I would run, you know, and so I would run to the studio and I would see these statues turn around and look at me and go, you better be good today. <laughs> you better sing your ass off today. And I felt that. I felt like Achilles was my co-writer, you know. It was, it's difficult to explain, but 
I really looked at the city very hardcore, and I got a guy who was an aficionado of, of, the, of the mythology of Rome, and he took me around, you know. He took me around and showed me where Caligula took a piss or where Julius Caesar was burnt to death or whatever. That, so, well, that's, that's easy. You can just point anywhere in Rome that's where Caligula took a piss. Well, you know, this is the title of my next album, <laughs> obviously, and thank you. <laughs> but yes, you're, you're asking... <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're right. But my point being the funk of Rome, you know, not the mythology of Rome. He knew the secrets and it was so fascinating to me. And the record has nothing to do with that, but it inspired me to be timeless and out of my comfort zone and in another place. You know, I've recorded in London and, and New York and L.A., but to record in this, by the way, the studio is called the Forum Studios where Morricone, Ennio Morricone, did all those lush orchestrations yeah. for all these wonderful movies. And so therefore it had a huge, and on a Jimmy Page level, if you've got guitar, bass and drums in a studio that is massive, you're going to get a big fat rock and roll sound, which is what we did. This is evidenced by the key to the universe. I, they, you know, they say that you got to get the get the room right for the drums and everything else it's, to figure it out. It's the most important instrument in rock and roll, wouldn't you say? I yeah, mean, I, it, I kind of agree. Yeah, I like, and hardest thing to record. I like about drums hardest is to record. That, but the thing is about the recording process. We did it on analog. Oh, really? Yeah. And and the reason for that was that we wanted it to sound like vinyl, like the template setting bands zeppelin the star i mean jimmy miller is on his knees with the shakers in in charlie's bass drum mic you know there, there are ways of doing and recording that people have lost because now they do it they go oh you want a flute and they press a button so it, it, our thing was the opposite of that and the producer that we had it's all about where you put the mics if you want to be technical about it it's where and what he would do would he was cut <clears throat> this is interesting he'd set up the gear bass guitar drums so he'd go in front of the kit and he would push his ears out like this and if you guys do that do it now please and talk you can't do it you got earphones but do you hear talk say something okay and talk oh yeah it sounds way different right so it sounds right you guys uh, who are listening to this do what i'm doing right now just cup your ears like this and talk okay do so it. you're going to hear a whole other thing now he would go around the room and do that so the sound and they hit your bass drum the guy would hit the bass drum and he would put the mic exactly where this sounded perfect so there is no compression on that album there are no tricks on that album there's no auto certainly not auto tuning which is an anathema to me uh it's exactly an analog pure rock and roll sound no effects and that's what people did in the old days and yeah, those are the bands that everybody wants to hear. You know, you want to hear Rotor, get eyes on the road and your hands upon you. You want to hear that, uh, which is Morrison drunk, you know, <laughs> singing to like the band going, oh, Jesus, he's drunk again. You know, so you get a feeling of, of, the, of what's really happening. So it's not anesthetized, you know, it's real. And yeah, it, it's, it's amazing that now it's, you know, a recording studio for some people is their bedroom yes yeah, their bedroom and it's cool because by the way i record a lot, a lot in my bedroom but it's unreleasable i'm sorry no i'm saying it's cool because people you know it's like you know the the laptop is in a lot of ways the garage now well, it's like well we can now record our band in the garage and get it out there for people to hear it's it's weird it's like you're talking about the connection with the internet the thing i like about it most is accessibility and how my children don't understand that i don't have a song 
Like we'll be in the car and they're like, no, 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 we want to hear the Batman theme. I'm like, I don't have it. And they're like, you, you do. Yeah. And I'm like, oh shit, I can find it on yes. YouTube. Son of a bitch, I do have it. Yes, <clears throat> yes, I think that's great. And and me too. You know, youngins can access. But what they're it, let's talk about what they're accessing. You know, yeah. uh, you know, if you're a rock fan, you can access Led Zeppelin and you can access One Direction. Now, then it becomes a choice. You know, but I I I think. I think that ultimately, if you can reproduce John Bonham's snare drum sound, Bill Wyman's bass sound, Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar sound, what the fuck is that? What is that? I mean, in a way, it's great. It's like uh, found objects in terms of avant-garde art, you know. Yes, sure. But I don't, that's not what I do. I plug in, I look at the guy, the guy counts it off, I'll see you at the end. And, you know. And let's hope what happens in the next three minutes is like great and we can feel it. But I don't go in afterwards and sing it again or get the bass player to come in and go, you know, just before I went, ooh, baby, do that bass thing. Do that bass thing right before the ooh, baby bit. You know, I mean, that, that, that to me is, is ludicrous in a ways of making records. Now, I might be out on a limb here and, um, you know, but if you listen to take a group like Maroon 5, it, it sounds, it's great. It sounds great. But... It's almost like being in a dental chair to me. It's, it, it, I don't know how to put it, but it seems so hygienic. <laughs> it, it's like making music with a condom over your head. <laughs> you know. My God, if people listening don't have books or band names after this podcast, I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, right? <clears throat> you know, th- here's, here's what it is. I like rock and roll music that has dirt under its fingernails and, and no underwear. You know, I mean, I, I come from a different school. You know, it's not sanitized. I'm not going to rip off Marvin Gaye. Uh, you know, I love Marvin Gaye, and uh, and and it's an incredible story. It'd be a great movie. I mean, look how it ended. You know, speaking of transgenderism, I mean, yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that rock and roll to me is dirty. It has a permanent sweat on its brow, and leather trousers. But you said you were about what fourteen when it really hit you. Yeah, I was and that's, I think that's the experience for everybody. I remember when I was fifteen. We've talked about this on the show. Is that you know <clears throat> when I was fifteen, Bon Jovi was God. You know, Cinderella was it. And then I loved Tom. I loved. I thought he was really talented. That kid from Cinderella. Oh yeah, they yeah, were great. Yeah, and, he was and, really and, good. What good songwriter. He was yeah. a great songwriter. That kid. He was a great songwriter. Oh, Tom Kiefer. Yeah, yeah. he was great. But um, I think he, it, he, it, he pushed a little of the um, Aerosmith edge. With well, looks, yes. But he had, well, he of course, because you lose faith <laughs> and you start copying what's happening. You know, it's it's a, a tried and true tradition. But it comes with your first direction. Oh yeah, which well, is it, of what, course the title of my autobiography, <laughs> which is very I, exciting. You're taking all the good ones. Volume sixty nine. <laughs> it's um, no the, the <laughs> you're taking all the good ones. <laughs> No, See, but I, I remember mean, when did... a guy gave me like you know the the DC hardcore band Minor Threat, you know, and for oh, me I that was where my Threat. brain went like, oh, this is this is mine, this is where I want to go. You know, your tribe. Experience. Just... But I was around fifteen. My yeah. ears were um, they weren't that developed because it was all it was still new, you know. Yeah, isn't and that, that band beautiful? had been broken up for a few years by the time I found them. But that moment, but that's what's great about the internet. You can be fifteen and discover Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's amazing. And it sounds great. And it's, you know, you know, but uh, I think that for me, it began when sexuality started to come in, if you pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> m- music came with that, uh, that, 
And uh, and and I and it was blues for me. It was Sonny Boy. It was Robert Johnson. It was Lightning Hot. It was Howling Wolves. It was Muddy Waters. Little Richard. It was all of the all the things that you hear ad, ad nauseum. But that's what got me off. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that these Second World War kids, boys and girls, bluesy kids, adapted that as their soundtrack. You know, it's really you had Minor Threat. You know, we had like uh, you know Slim Harpo. I mean, why? What an incredible hybrid where you... Brian Jones says, okay, Elmore James, man. Listen to Elmore James, the slide guitar player. And, and then Mick met Keith on the thing, and they, then they've got... They change records. It's a great, great, wonderful metaphysical story of why did these young, working-class boys and girls adopt the blues as, this, as their heartbeat? Why is that? It's, a, it's unexplainable. Where's the movie? I don't know. You know, but there should be one. There's some way of explaining that. It's hard to explain. I think it's because the oppression of of the African American experience is analogous to the working class of Britain. Dude, I think you just you just you just described the commitments. That's that whole movie. It's like we're the working class Irish. That's, that's you know, a it's brilliant. Like, it's like I'm a, black and I'm proud. I'm an, a white Irish blues band. I'm, I'm, I'm eating potatoes and I'm proud. <clears throat> I I um I completely understand, and you're absolutely correct. It, and it's about it's about the underdog, and the only thing that got them through all of that was sex. Sex was the only you know. <laughs> there's a great book. It was written called The Birth of Cool by Lewis McAdams, who's a, a real wonderful poet and writer. And what he says is that the, the first moment, and this is a little heavy for you guys probably, but I'll say it nevertheless. The, the, the first image of cool that he says in the book is the face of the slave watching his wife being raped by the plantation owner. Now just think about that for a second. What is he being? Cool. Because if he wasn't cool, he'd be lynched. He'd be executed. Now, I know this is very heavy shit. I know this is going probably too far. But I'm saying that it runs deep. The blues runs deep because it was the only way to escape the dreadful venality and viciousness of uh, the oppressed slaves. And I think Brits, after coming out of that war, no money, no jobs. I think they responded to that feeling, albeit like subconsciously. With with your perspective, I mean, you've seen so many changes. I feel like, where do you sort of see when you see these things being debated today, like whatever gay rights or rights for transgender people, or all these things that seem kind of inevitable but seem to drag on forever? I mean, is it is it is that just the way of progress? Do you see things changing? How, how does things sort of look for you, kind of looking forward? Well, let's get specific. I think that transgender is the new black. <laughs> I think that Bruce Jenner, the, the moment, this whole Bruce Jenner thing is unbelievably important to the culture. That's why everybody makes jokes of it, because they can't understand it. So you make fun of it. But the facts are that there are all these young kids out there changing their sex. They're 9, they're 10, they're 14. Um, and I think that this is, again, harkens back to the idea of identity. My whole thing is about equality. On my show, which I do for Little Stevens Underground Garage, I play women singing, only because, as well as the guys, because I believe in equality. The LGBT community is the last taboo of civil rights. And, and, and get it together. And of course I'm impatient about it. And I say, I have a song on my album called Black Sheep Are Beautiful. 
And it's about just what you just said. Of course we have to get that stuff sussed out. Otherwise, we're just a society of, of judgment. There's no compassion there. And if we can, you know, any opportunity you've got to show compassion, mm-hmm. especially in this situation, show it, be it, support it. You know, let people be individuals. You know, the only way a great relationship can work, I presume, with your children, you're married and you have, and you're, you know, so, but you remain an individual. Look at you, you're this guy, you have this wonderful um, view of pop culture and you're doing your own thing. You've got to allow people to do that in a love, in a loving relationship. It's the same thing with the LGBT community. Allow them. Linda Perry is the most successful, brilliant, Rock and roll sing. She just married a dear friend of mine, Sarah Gill, but I did Roseanne's show for a year. You know, I, I love Sarah Gill, but they, they just had a child. It's a beautiful, loving relationship. How dare people legislate that this thing can't happen? It's outrageous. It's, it's barbaric. It is as barbaric as chopping the hands off in the Middle East because you stole a lemon. I mean, it is insane. And uh, the sooner people wake up and, 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 and understand that there are many versions of humanity, the better. Does that right answer on. your question? Yes, that, that is a great answer. Yeah, that, that works for us. Hey, um, I actually have to head out in a few minutes, but I heard that you had requested a guitar. Oh, yeah. to play, I'll play something. A song. And sure. I, yeah, I want to sure. hear it before I have to go actually pick up my children. Look at those, look at those trousers. Look at that that came in and happened. Well done. Well done. One, one of the most ridiculous movies, and I don't know how true it is at all, but I've watched it so many times, was Pirate Radio. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman, the one on the ship? Yeah. Great. And, oh, God, it just... Well, you know I, what? That's, I that, loved it. Well, that's when the glory days of when you could play music uh, that you liked. There, there were no yeah. playlists, right? Let me have that. We had a professional tune it. Okay, so I'm going to do... Is this sound good? It sounds amazing. Okay, so I'm going to do a song off the album. There. But first of all, I'm going to show you my biceps. <laughs> that shit. This is a song called Can't Get You Off My Mind, which is written by the great Linda Perry. It goes like this. Everywhere I turn, I can see you're in the back of my mind. 
Thank you so much, Michael. That was amazing. I had a lovely time talking to you guys. Yes. Thank you so much. You it's bet. been just wonderful. Thanks, really, really cool. Thanks, Steve. God bless you. Wow. What a combo. So, um, so just as a reminder, uh, before I forget, Michael DeBars' album... The Key to the Universe is out now. You should check it out. He sent us all copies. Mm-hmm. And he sent me one with a key necklace that I have at home. And he sent, like, personal thank yous to everyone. Like, n- no one does that. <laughs> Even, like, my scumbag friends that come on here don't do that. <laughs> They're just like, where's your shoes? Uh, so, yeah, what an awesome dude. And Fantastic. I would love to have him come back because I feel like that... That he has so many stories that we could probably oh yeah we could do, do ten podcasts we could do him. a mini series yeah Michael DeBar mini series that's actually not a bad idea all right let's do it should we just do a podcast based on him what do you mean just do a podcast with him yeah let's do a podcast we just we we'll just do a podcast where he comes in and tells stories every week we should do that <laughs> if only we had the way to do that <laughs> um, oh there's a camera I never noticed that. <laughs> uh, wow distracto uh, so yeah thank you to Michael DeVars for coming by why do I feel so weird I don't know what's in your coffee I think it's just this is like my third cup of Stumptown coffee okay and I think I'm hitting that point where like I start to feel like I'm floating does that happen to you uh no usually I go the other direction really kind of sink yeah I I'm, guess no in Stumptown though I've gotten pretty high yeah, I feel like you. I, I get buzzed off it, especially like that ice cold brew coffee. That stuff is dangerous. It's good. But They're not a sponsor. Here we are, like propping them though. Yeah, you guys are cool. I should send them a. I should let them know. Yeah, Stumptown <laughs> Coffee. Check it out. It's good. We, we're they're not a sponsor, but we like it. What else can we talk about that we like that it's not a sponsor? What else do we like that's not a sponsor? Um, I really like Six Points beer. It's yeah, tasty. I love it. Like yeah, six crisp. months of beer is pretty good. Just had some of that. It's good. 
Yeah. West Pauls are cool. West Pauls are cool. I've been drinking a lot of um, Poland seltzer water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I there like, you go. I like the vanilla and I like the uh, orange vanilla. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, haven't, I haven't been drinking lately, but I've been... So you needed something I've there. been supplementing. You needed with, a little, like, thing. Yeah. I need that little take the edge off of those bubbles. That makes sense. It's like tea, you know? I found that tea... I understand why people go nuts for tea because it's like, it's in a way, because it has a process involved. You know how like a lot of great drugs have a process involved, like whether it's rolling a joint or cutting up lines. Like yes, that process for some people I think is as important as consuming. Yeah. Consuming, and I think I think people that are crazy for tea, they do. You know, they they like the they like the process. Yeah, you know? they get the sense. raw tea and they make their little bag out of it or whatever. You know what's interesting about not drinking is ordering seltzer water at a bar or at a show. It ranges anywhere from a dollar to like, oh, I'll just give you this for free to three dollars. Yeah, it's such a, a wide range. It's not a you know often requested thing. Really. No, if it's, if someone's my friend who's working, they'll give it to me for free. But sometimes people I don't know will give it to me for free. Sometimes they'll charge me. It's really weird. Yeah. So I mean, it doesn't cost very much. It can't cost that much, right? It's water. Yeah, it's water. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I get that about the process. I feel it's that with coffee, too. People get really oh, into it. Yeah, definitely. That stuff is interesting me to a point, and then it's just kind of annoying. The process? Well, just like talking like really in-depth about like craft beer or coffee or that stuff. I like it up to a point. I think it's interesting. And then I feel like it crosses a line where I'm like, all right, dude, look, I got to go. <laughs> I just want to consume it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm kind of that way. I like to consume. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's what we're put on this planet to do. Just destroy it. I'll let somebody else get all involved with the process to make sure my ingredients are fresh and well-prepared. <laughs> and they just give it to me. Yeah. Well, Brad, I mean, you're putting... That's what you do with mixes, man. <laughs> you're making them fresh and... Anyway. <laughs> uh... Sorry, Michael. Uh, <laughs> got off on a really weird tangent there, but that's Jonah's gonna, obviously high on this I'm coffee. I'm obviously high on this coffee, and, and I blame. <laughs> he hasn't been drinking. This is what happens. Yeah, my my liver's like, what's it's going? Kind of like when people like it's like people that did a lot of LSD when they lose weight. Doesn't it come out of the fat? Isn't that the old myth? That's so they they get high. Really? No, it, I've never heard it, that before. It, like it gets into their body fat. So then years later, when they if they if they go on a diet, they can they'll go they'll trip. Interesting. I'm sure that that's complete bullshit. Yeah, that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something people tell you to like, <laughs> so you won't do psychedelics. <laughs> like, oh, you want to lose weight? Well, you're going to have like, you're going to be seeing fucking Smurfs or whatever. Not true. Brad just is spreading disinformation. Uh, that's what we're here. This is the end of the pot. This is the true. end. If you're that's listening, true. if you're still listening, yeah, then you should you should just get an earful of bullshit yeah that's true that's a good point um <laughs> all right let's wrap this up uh michael Please. debar's new album the key of the universe out now thank you for coming by come back anytime you're awesome uh going off track.com we got track.com you can donate donate a dollar help us pay for our server costs check us out on twitter check us out on instagram blah 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 um Brad's building a studio in Boston. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm playing shows <laughs> with my band. They probably happened already. Uh, thanks for listening. And we will be back next week with hopefully a podcast as, as cool as this one.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.